and good morning. So good to worship with you this morning and to uh, be together. I want to echo uh, Miss Shelley's welcome and just say we're so glad that you're here with us and uh, so thankful. Um, hope you had a great Thanksgiving um, with family and friends and just were surrounded with uh, the love of God as you celebrated that special day. If you are still looking for seats, there are a few right here on the front, and uh, we have some ushers that can help you find some seats. There's, there's kind of spaced out around the room, and so I uh, definitely want you to be comfortable and uh, not have to stand for this hour. And so Pastor Adam and Clint and a few others can help you guys find some seats uh, where you are needed or wherever, if they are needed, excuse me, they are clearly needed. Um, but they're around the room. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love an opportunity to do that. I'll be right down front um, at the end of our service, and uh, we'd love to just pray with you. We'd love to talk with you, um, answer questions you have about our church or about this message, our text that we're studying. And if you're our guest, we're studying the book of Acts. Uh, it's our practice here at City Church to just work our way through books of the Bible. And we are um, in Acts chapter 17 uh, this morning. If you want to open your Bibles there now to Acts chapter 17, we left all the very first half of Acts chapter 17 last week, we left off where Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke were in Berea. Um, as they had visited the Bereans, they took the gospel to uh, the Bereans on this missionary journey, and they found there in the Bereans a people who were eager for God's word, eager to study God's word. Um, the scripture tells us that they studied it daily. It was a regular part of their life, that they centered their lives on God's word. And because of that, they were commended uh, for that. Well, as we move on from the Bereans, and, and Paul himself is going to journey down to the city of Athens. Uh, we are going to see in some ways a bit of the opposite of that or, or, or the counter to the Bereans of people who have uh, created gods and, 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 and worshipped idols and have really no interest in the one true God. And Paul is going to bring the hope of Christ, the message of the gospel uh, to these people. Uh, one of the things I love, you've heard me say this many times if you've been a part of our church family for any time, but one of the things I love uh, is our practice of working our way through books of the Bible and passages, and, and it always strikes me the providence of God in the text that we land on in specific weeks. And the text that we land on, because uh, it's, it, it just hits me this morning, knowing that many of our young people are home this week and are here with us. I look around the room, I see many of my friends um, who've gone on to different places but have come home to visit family, my own children in, included in that. And this text and Paul's message to the Athenians is great for all of us to hear, but specifically for those young people who are, find themselves in the world and in this pursuit of the new things and new knowledge and new understanding, that pressure that comes at that age and that season of life, I believe that it's providential that God would have you back home so you could hear this message from his word uh, from Acts chapter 17. Athens was a beautiful city. Um, many of us, have, you know, many of you, I haven't had the blessing of doing this, but some of you have visited Athens even today. We know the history that is there, the, the great architecture that is there, has been there historically. And in this city, uh, when Paul visits there, Athens has in some ways um, kind of lost its luster. It's begun its decline. Um, what we see today in terms of the ruin that it sits in, um, it had, that kind of situation had started to set in when Paul Paul visits Athens and comes to the city of Athens, but it was known no longer as the political center of the Roman Empire or the economic center that had moved down to Corinth, but it was known as the cultural center of the 
Roman Empire, the arts and knowledge and philosophy and all of those things, again, that we so often think of in our universities um, and in uh, places of higher education, that is what happened. That is what was sort of the, the rule of the day in the city of Athens. And so Paul comes to Athens by himself, and he's going to deal directly with these people and their thoughts and their mis- dis- or misbelief or unbelief in these false gods. And the question that Paul is going to ultimately ask them is, who will you worship? The question for all of us is, who will you worship? Will you worship the one true God? Or will you worship the God that you have created for yourself? A God that you have made to be like what you would want God to be like, which is always going to be lead to death. It's not going to lead to life. So if you're able, would you stand out of reverence for God's word as we read from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and following. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Amaris, and others with them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. As we do each week, we thank you for the blessing to be able to hold it in our hands, to read it aloud, to study it. It is alive and breathing. We thank you for the work that you will do through your word this morning. I pray that it would have its way in our hearts, that we may be attentive. And yes, for some of us, that we may confront 
the idols that we have formed in our own hearts and minds that have led us away from the worship of the one true God. For those of us who have believed, may we rejoice in knowing you, God. May we find our life in you alone and not lesser things. Help us in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul, as we said, has made his way down to Athens. I have a map for you. I've shown you this as we've made our way through this book. He was in Berea there at the end of the green line. He makes his way in this very long journey down to Athens. We don't know exactly how long this took and how much time has uh, taken place or the space between this. But Paul is there and it says that he's gone alone here. He's not with Timothy and Silas any longer. He's there in Athens alone. And immediately upon arriving in Athens, it says that his spirit, in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Coming from Berea, where he had seen a people who were interested and eager to study God's word and and, and, and eager for the gospel message and to, to know Christ, now he arrives in this city, this very worldly city, and sees this city that is full of idols. An ancient historian who visited Athens just 50 years after Paul was there said of Athens that there were more idols than there were people. The population at the time that he visited just 50 years after Paul visited, the population of Athens was somewhere around 10,000 people, and yet there were 30,000 idols. 30,000 idols set upon all of the roads, the worship of these false gods. This was the city that Paul arrived in, and it was clear that they were worshiping these false gods. And what that did to Paul is it, it created him this, this provocation. It says his spirit was provoked. That word provoked would have, could be translated this idea of rage, sincere anger that people had been led so far astray that they were worshiping these false gods. Paul's spirit was provoked. He had this, this rage within him, this heartbreaking rage at the reality that this whole city was covered with idols and the people had been led astray to worship these false gods. Paul's spirit was provoked. He was heartbroken that that was the reality, the condition of these people's souls. As Christians, We should be grieved by lostness around us. Paul's anger, his provocation, that that heartbreak that he experienced should be the reality for every single one of us. As we walk through life and we see people who are worshiping lesser gods or not worshiping God at all, who are far from God, our hearts should break within us for their condition, for the reality that they don't know the God that we know. Now, some of you in this room, I expect, That might be you. You may be someone who says, I'm not sure I know this God. I don't have any understanding. I'm not clear on who this God is. Let me just tell you, as you're gonna hear in just a few moments, God has brought you here so that you might know him today. And so I just ask, would you just, by the power of God's spirit, might you hear this message? But Paul's heart was broken. As Christians, our hearts should break for the lost around us. That's part of our Christian sort of identity is that we would desire others to know the grace that we ourselves have received, that to know the hope that we have. If you walk through life and you aren't grieved by lostness, as you meet people who don't know Christ, who are far from God, if that doesn't break your heart, you might not fully understand the grace that Christ has given you. You might not fully grasp it. 
Let me encourage you, if you know Christ and you understand what he has done for you, your desire will be that every single person that you meet and encounter would know that same hope. And this was what Paul experienced as he arrives in this city, this city full of idols. But Paul didn't allow this anger to just sort of well up in him or just sit there and do nothing. No, the frustration, the anger that Paul experienced, it led to action. He didn't just sit on the sidelines. He engaged. He said, I see this loss. As I see the depravity of man. I see the hopelessness of this city. And so he pressed into that and he began to take action. And what does it say he did? He did what he so often did as he arrived in a new city. It says in verse 17 that he went to the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons, those people who were pursuing some knowledge of God, had some understanding of who God was. He went to them to convince them or to show them who Jesus was. He reasoned with them. He also went into the marketplace. He went into the workplace. Friends, some of you think that ministry exists only here on this building on Sunday mornings. Let me tell you, there is so much more ministry happening all over the world, Monday through Saturday, in places that are not here on this campus and on churches all over the world. As you go into the marketplace, as you go into the world, wherever God has sent you, he is sending you there, again, providentially, so that you might see the lostness and you might offer them the hope of Jesus Christ. Paul went to the marketplace and he engaged in conversations he had conversations. It says he reasoned with them a couple weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. I had a lot of food. I can't remember when I said this, so just go back and listen to the podcast. But I talked about, we looked at this word reasoning. This wasn't a beating them down, trying to just pummel them with information. This wasn't trying to be, it wasn't an aggressive stance. It was, let me have a conversation with you, understanding the, the way that you are viewing the world. Understanding someone's worldview is one of the first steps to being able to engage in a conversation with them. What do they put their hope in? Where do they find life? Where do they find joy? What do they worship? It will become evident as you spend time with people and have conversations with them. And so Paul, he has these conversations. And the third group of people he mentions are these philosophers. Again, the philosophers were the rulers of this city. This city was a city of philosophy. And it says that there in verse 18, there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also conversed with him. The Epicureans were agnostics. They were people who believed that God existed, but did not believe that you could know God. They believe that God, as we kind of sometimes might describe in modern day, as the cosmic watchmaker. He built the world, he set it all up, he built the clock, he wound it up, and then he's just sort of taking his hands off the wheel, and everything is just happening according to however it might happen. With no providence, no hand upon God, you can't know God. And so with their life, their worldview, that led them to say, I'm going to just try to enjoy this life to its fullest. And the way that they found to enjoy life to the fullest was leading a simple life, sort of withdrawing quite a bit from society other than engaging in this philosophy and leading this simple life and ultimately believed that when you died, that was the end. Just simple annihilation, you died and there was no afterlife. That's what the Epicureans believed. The Stoics... They were pantheists. They believed that everything could be God. They would look somewhat like our Hindu of today, that anything can be a God. You can worship anything. God is uh, everywhere. But they also believed that whatever happened to you was just simply destiny, and there was nothing that you could do, again, to shape that or to impact that. It was whatever the gods wanted, and they believed that anything could be a God. And ultimately, at the end of life, you would just sort of just be absorbed into the cosmos and go away. 
This is what they believed. And so Paul engages with these philosophers of the day. It's interesting, just as a quick side note, to see that we don't have many of Paul's messages recorded. You might remember in Acts 14 where Paul confronted the men in Lystra. And here in Acts 17, we have this message that he's about to deliver at the Areopagus. But that is the extent, there's, there's not many other recordings of God's. This great preacher, this great evangelist, this church planter that went all over the world. And the reason is, I believe that Luke records this for us, is it gives us the model that Paul would use every time he arrived in a city. He would try to understand what made the people tick. What was their driving force? What, again, did they worship? What was their worldview? And Paul would engage in that. And so while we don't have a lot of messages to see how Paul would preach, we can know, essentially, wherever he went, he would follow this same model. What we saw in Acts 14 and what we'll see here in Acts chapter 17. And so he engages in this conversation. Well, as he converses with them, we see the first pushback from what he had to say. Look at what it says in verse 18. And some said, these philosophers, what does this babbler wish to say? A few others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he's they're confronting and asking him, and they call him, they mock him first by calling him a babbler. This word babbler that is translated for us as babbler in English could also, or in the original language, would say or would be a word along the ideas of a very strange word called a seed picker. A seed picker. Now you're wondering, how do we get from seed picker to babbler? The seed picker was a term of mocking that people would use, these philosophers would use, for people who went around picking up ideas as a bird would pick up a seed on the ground, picking up ideas and regurgitating those ideas without really much understanding of what they were saying. They wanted to puff themselves up as someone who was wise and knowledgeable in the day, and so they would seed pick, they would pick up these various ideas, and then they would speak them out loud, and they really didn't understand what they were saying. And so these philosophers, again, this term was a common term in the culture that was used to mock people like this. These philosophers, they say, oh, he's another one of these seed pickers. He's coming around. He's a babbler just offering up all sorts of nonsense that really doesn't matter. It doesn't make sense. And so they disregard what he has to say. But there were a few that wanted to hear more. They were interested because the Holy Spirit of God was at work in this city and in this place. And they wanted to hear what Paul had to say. And so they asked him for more information. Now the irony, back to this idea of seed picking, if we look at verse 21, Luke kind of knowing this, he confronts it or he sort of flips it on its head. Notice what Luke offers as the narrator of this story about the Athenians. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The people who were calling Paul a seed picker were themselves seed pickers, always looking just for any new idea with really not understanding what they were doing, not fully understanding what they were proclaiming in their wisdom of the world. They were always looking for something new. By the way, does that sound like our culture today? Constantly looking for something new, a new approach Anything that is new is what is favored, new ideas. We need to get rid of all the old things and think of new ways. That's the 
lie of culture. That's the lie of the world that is so often. It's the same thing that the Athenians were dealing with, applies even to us today. We see it. As Christians, we need to remember that we are people of the old way. It was new when Paul was bringing the gospel to Athens, but that was thousands of years ago. The message that Paul proclaimed thousands of years ago means that it's not new today. We are people of this, the word of God, the old way. We don't offer the new ideas. No, we have a very old idea. Man is sinful and unable to make him, him, his way to God on his own. Therefore, there is a mediator that was given by God himself, the man Jesus Christ, who came down and lived the perfect life that man could not live. He gave his life away. Three days later, was raised from the dead to atone for all sin and death. And as we believe in, in him, we are saved and we have right relationship with God again. That's an old story. It's the old way. This is the message that Paul brings. And so he comes and is asked to speak to the Areopagus it says in verse 22, there he is, he's, he's taken up and they want to hear more. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, begins to speak. The Areopagus was this hilltop. Some of you have heard Mars Hill, heard of Mars Hill, this place, this elevated place in Athens where he was speaking. But it is also the group of people. It was a, a title for this sort of council of philosophers. These wise men of the city gathered there to hear what Paul had to say. And in response to these attacks of being a seed picker or being someone with, with, with some new idea, he speaks. Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Paul is surrounded by idols and is going to tell them that they're worshiping idols, that there can only be one true God, and they're going to have to decide what is true. You are worshipers. He sees their worship, he's seen their idols, and he doesn't attack them initially, he commends them. I see that you are worshipers. That's a good thing. By the way, every single one of us is a worshiper. We are created to worship. Therefore, we will worship. You can't say, I'm not a worshiper. Sometimes you may have even heard this, had a conversation with a friend. Some of you may have said this to someone. Again, if you're here as a guest, you may have said, yeah, I'm not very religious. No, you are. You just are worshiping something that is not God. We are all worshipers because we are created to be worshipers because that's how God made us in his image to worship him. And so we are all worshipers. And Paul acknowledges this and says, I see that you're very religious because I've seen your idols. But the irony is, Paul says, you don't know who you worship for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, but I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. You are worshipers, but you who claim to be wise, who claim to be filled with all of the knowledge of the world, who claim to understand everything and have an explanation for everything, you yourselves simply say through this altar that you've built that you are worshiping an unknown God. Here we have these great knowers, wise in their own eyes, think they have life figured out, and yet they don't know the most important thing that there is to know in life, which is to know God. There's nothing more important than that. Well, Paul, acknowledging the reality of where they are, says, let me tell you what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. There is a God. And this God is the creator of all. 
And here we see again the model that Paul uses that we can, we can use ourselves as we engage in conversations, as we reason with our friends and our family members and our coworkers and those that we spend time with, we can have this conversation. He says, the God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. He tells them there is a God. And more than that, there is a God, and you can know him. And maybe you picked up on this, but in that message, he confronts directly the false teaching of these philosophers and the idols of their day. The Epicureans, what did they believe? That you can't know God. And Paul expresses to them, I present to you, you've said there is an unknown God, let me tell you there is one true God and you can know him. The Stoics believed that anything could be a God, that he could exist as a God in created things and he directly confronts them by saying he does not live in created things. He does not live in temples made by man. No, this God is bigger than that. He is the creator. He's the giver of all life. He's active in our lives. Not just that we can know him, but that he is active in our lives, but not everything that you see is God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place on their own accord. Once you come to grips with the reality that you are here to know God, everything else will sort of fall into place, Packer says. By the way, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, I have a few books that I commend that every Christian should read outside of the Bible. That's one of them. If you haven't read Knowing God, let me just commend that to you. Get that book. If you need help getting that book, come see me at the end of the service. I'd love to help you do that. It's a tremendous book. The idea that we are created to know God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? Why did God create man? What is the reason that he decided? He didn't have to create. Why did he create? So that we might know God. We might know him and enjoy him forever. That's why he created. If you've ever thought to yourself, why why am I here? What is my existence for? Why did God create me personally? He created you to know him and enjoy him forever. That's why you're here. And once you understand that, then everything else starts to fall into place. This is what Paul says. You can know this God, and he is the creator of all. He says, then, not just that he is the creator, but that he has a plan, a purpose for your life. Look what he says. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God, that they should seek him. He says to them, not only can you know God, but this God is involved in your life and has a plan and a purpose for your life. He has put you here for this very reason. Paul is recognizing and acknowledging the fact that they have been brought there. Paul has come to Athens and they are living in Athens so they can hear the gospel at this moment in time. God has a perfect plan for your life. He's not far. 
We've said this very often since the beginning of this church. We've said that, God, you didn't just move here on accident. You aren't here this Sunday morning on accident. You, there, there, there's nothing that happens just sort of because. There's not a happenstance in the world. No, God in his sovereignty has brought us to the places where we live, to the places where we work, in the communities that we live in, into this gathered body of believers so that we can know him. He has a plan and a purpose. And that's so that we might know him more. If you've ever doubted, again, maybe you're here this morning as a doubter, you're a little bit skeptical of this God. Can he be real? The reality that you are here is evidence that he is. <laughs> because you wouldn't choose to be here on your own. God has drawn you here so that you might hear the hope of the gospel. He then tells them that he created you. He says that he set the boundaries, they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward him, yet he's not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Isn't it amazing that Paul grabs, this is now scripture, but Paul grabs from the poets of culture and quotes them as he tells them, even your own poets know this. The wise of the age, they know what is true. All truth is God's truth. And Paul grabs that in this message. Being then, verse 29, God's offspring, we not, ought not to think that divine beings is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, we shouldn't think of God as these lesser created things. We must acknowledge that he's above all those things. He is the one who created them all so that we would worship him. Friends, it's wrong. It's insulting to God when we worship the created things above the creator. Paul says, you take the imagination that God gave you as your creator and you create these things for yourself and worship them above the one who gave you the imagination to create them in the first place. That's wrong. Why would you worship the lesser thing above the one who gave it to you in the first place? That doesn't make sense. If you're a philosopher, that is illogical. Why would you worship the created when you know that there is a creator? Which gets to the heart of the problem with idols. And we all have them. And we all end up worshiping them if we're not careful. The problem with idols isn't simply that they lead us to worship the wrong thing. That's one of them, it's, but it's not simply that. The problem is that they prevent us from worshiping the one true God because our worship is redirected to lesser things. And they steal worship from God. Idols steal from God. That's why they're evil. That's why God said you shall not worship these created things, lesser things, these images. Idol worship stems ultimately from believing too little about God. Again, as worshipers, because we are created to worship, we will worship. And the Athenians were worshipers, but they settled for worshiping lesser things rather than the one true God. One more quote from Packer. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough object, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance in this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? What more could you want in life 
than the ability to know God, to know your creator, not to have him as some distant cosmic watchmaker, not to have him that he's just everything, but to know him personally. That's why we're here again. And there's no higher calling. There's no higher purpose. I challenged you again a couple weeks ago. Are you bored with life? Do you find the day-to-day activities just sort of going through the motions? You just kind of feel like you're just sort of barely getting it? Let me challenge you again. You are not pursuing the highest calling of your life, which is to know God. There is in this book unsearchable riches. If you're bored, you're not pursuing God because you cannot get bored with knowing God. There is no higher thing. And that's why Packer would said that we as Christians, while the rest of the world can get bored and has this sort of hopelessness about it, we cannot be because there's no higher calling, no higher objective, nothing that can catch our imagination like knowing our creator. Well, in response to this message, Paul then calls the Athenians to acknowledge these things as true. And he calls them to repent. In verse 30, he says, the, time of, the, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He calls the Athenians to repent and believe. What are they supposed to do in response to this message, to this acknowledgement, to this sort of putting their idols right where they are in front of their face and calling them what they were and saying, stop worshiping them, but worship the God who created you? Repent and believe. And here's the amazing thing to me about this. Athens was a city with 30,000 idols by one man's count, plus or minus however many completely devoted to the false worship of lesser things, completely devoted to worshiping themselves and their own ideas and full of all of these things. And God said, I still love people in that city enough. I'm gonna send Paul to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ so they might be redeemed. You think you're too far from God? because you've just counted in this message the 37 idols that you've been worshiping. You don't have 30,000 yet, so you're not too far along. God brought you here so you might hear this message of grace to repent of that and believe in Jesus. God loved the Athenians, even in spite of all that they had done, all of their turning away from him and rejecting him and creating these lesser gods that stole worship from him. And he still sent Paul so that there would be some who would repent and believe and find life in him. If you think you're too far from God to be saved, you have just heard that that is not true. That is not true. Repent and believe. And again, he confronts, even in this calling to them to to repent and believe, he reminds them that no, annihilation is not the end, Epicureans. Being absorbed into the cosmos is not the end, Stoics. No, that's not the end. There is an end. The end is a day of judgment by the only one who is righteous enough to judge. A day of judgment is coming. And what will be judged on that day 
It's not how much did you sin, because we're all going to stack up really bad. What's going to be judged on that day is who have you chosen to worship? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? What have you done with Jesus? Well, they got a little antsy in this as they were called to repent. It says there in verse 32, some of them heard, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They pushed back on this idea. Again, this new idea of the resurrection from the dead. They couldn't believe that that was possible. And so they rejected him. But then there were others who said, we will hear you about this again. Come tell us more. And as is always the case when the gospel is presented, it became a cornerstone for some and a stumbling block for others. They couldn't believe that God could love them that much that he would send his own son to lay down his life for them, to atone for their sinfulness. They couldn't believe that God was big enough to raise himself from the dead. They had a small view of God. But for some, they said, can I hear more? Tell me more. The gospel is always a stumbling block for some because they can't accept that they aren't God. They can't accept that they don't know better than God. They can't accept that God would love them like he does. Some of you might be feeling that same way. Let me give you the blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. He's real. He does love you. He sent you here, brought you here so that you might hear this message of hope. First Peter addresses this. Truth, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Some of you might have shame as a regular sort of wrestling match in your life. You feel shame. Can I encourage you, invite you? Those who put their belief in Jesus Christ, God's word says you will not be put to shame. Shame will not be a marker for your life. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what happened in Athens. Some believed, some rejected, some asked to hear more. Our worship team, as we close our time together this morning, they're going to lead us. As we're singing this song of worship, let me just invite you. If you don't know Jesus, if this idea of who God is and understanding and knowing God seems to be something distant, and you'd just be willing to hear more, ask God to speak. And again, I'll be down front. A few of our elders will be down front. Some ladies from our women's team will be down front. We, we'd love to just talk with you more. Set up an appointment to have a cup of coffee and talk more about this. Let today be the day of salvation. Would you repent of worshiping idols and believe in Jesus Christ? Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh.
say